It's a joy to have this time with you this morning together, church. If you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of Luke, today we move into chapter 4 and begin a focus on really the first couple verses of an important passage that sets the table for Jesus to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Today's sermon really becomes a part one of two as we look at the preparation of Christ for this in verses one and two. Look at this morning's focus with me in its entirety and we'll dive in. Luke chapter four, one through two. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. It is here, church, that we glean important details of how Jesus is preparing for the ministry he's taken on flesh to come and carry out covenant of redemption set before time between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for a battle to be waged. God made clear at the fall of mankind, Genesis 3.15, of her seed would rise up, one who would take on quite a bit of damage but would overcome the enemy. The time has come. These two will have face-to-face and ongoing throughout the years ahead. Um, the battle these come to wage for us against the great tempter, against sin, against death. I have found um, our generation different maybe than those before us are people who maybe don't take as seriously the good practices of preparation. Um, today, we get to glean good practices of preparation for important task at hand. As we see Jesus do so well um, to do what he's come to do. Um, and it starts by being in solid unity with the Holy Spirit. Look with me, church. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is first and foremost to show us the sovereignty of God to ordain this encounter between Jesus and Satan. It is his divine means for the testimony of Christ in this sin-ridden world that he has come to redeem his beloved. When we read the phrase, Jesus was full of the Spirit, we need to see the beautiful and perfect unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been perfect for all time, before time, from eternity past, when nothing was yet created, and continues this most amazing, perfect relationship, unity, oneness, continues as Jesus gets to his mission. When it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit, we're reminded of the essential ministry and power of the Holy Spirit. One that no one belonging to Christ in faith should ever go forth without. 
Christian, are you in tune with the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit? His ministry is an essential empowerment, discernment, guide, protection, and source of absolute truth for our journey through this world full of demons and deception and temptation. In the Old Testament, we're often shown the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he empowered people for special service for God's purposes. Uh, a few of those examples. He empowered Joshua with leadership skills and wisdom. He empowered the judges to deliver Israel from their oppressors. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit came mightily upon Saul to arouse him to battle against the enemies of Israel. Uh, when David was anointed as king, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward, equipping David to fulfill the task of kingship to which God had called him. It's also the testimony that we see in the New Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit, first and most importantly, in his anointing and empowering of Jesus as Messiah, as we've seen already in our text in chapter 3, as we read in our text today and in this portion of chapter 4, as Jesus enters the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. Later, when coming to preach in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus testifies himself in Luke 14, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Church, the role of the Holy Spirit is a critical role. If anyone is going to do or say what honors God, we need the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 through 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Jesus is going to do everything in his life and ministry, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Church, see with me the essential role of the Holy Spirit. We, we come to this passage and often see Jesus and Satan and everything that's happening, but the Spirit is at work. It's a critical part of Jesus' life and ministry. And what is good and God-honoring in all these things? See with me critical and amazing ministry and power of the Spirit is rightly the testimony of Jesus' life and ministry. Church, some will say that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten God. What they mean by this is when they think of God, they often will think of the Father or they'll think of the Son, but too often hardly think of, lean on, trust, or look to the Holy Spirit to lead them in truth and power. I pray the members of Disciples Church would grow in our walk in the Spirit in 2024 and beyond. Paul says it so well to the Galatians in chapter 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other. Galatians 5, 16 to 17. See with me, church. Jesus is not 
going at this life or ministry alone. No, he is in one accord with the Spirit. And this is critical for all that Jesus will face, including the very real outworkings and reality of his flesh, his humanity, as we're going to come to see this morning and beyond. Beloved, this is critical for us in all that we face as well in this life. See with me that the devil's coming temptations are his way of essentially wanting to replace the Spirit's impact on Jesus' life. The nature of Satan's temptations are for Jesus to turn to, to trust in, to rely on him instead of the Spirit. Satan is mounting his attack at this most vulnerable time in Jesus' flesh, as we're going to understand in more greatly this morning. But I would say, church, isn't that the case for us as well? When we're vulnerable, that's when the enemy brings on his best. The temptations that we face in this life, therefore, I would say many times are ultimately less about what, what the temptation is, less about that, and much more about who. Who are we listening to? Who are we going to trust and obey? The what in temptation often, if we see it rightly, is really a secondary thing. Church, it's about the who. Do we trust and obey the Spirit? Or do we trust and obey the enemy or the longings of our own fleshly desires? See with me why Jesus' unity and empowerment from the Spirit is such an essential equipping and, and, and testimony of his life and ministry. Praise God this morning. Join me, church, in praising God for the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we would not be spiritually alive, church. We would be devoid of all longing and power to do what honors God. We would never stay the course and we would never finish the race in faith. Praise God for the work of the Spirit. Praise God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives us power and conviction to recall the truth of God's word, to combat the onslaught of the enemy and the haunting weakness of our susceptible flesh. Praise God for the partnership and empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we see happening here with Christ. It is a ministry that we can often miss in the life and ministry of Christ our Lord unto the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption and Christ's victory over sin and death on our behalf. It's a ministry that we can often take for granted in our own life. May we be filled with the truth of the Spirit, the discernment of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to walk by faith and to trust and honor God in all that we face in these war-torn days before glory. Look again at our verses and let's consider the reality of temptation in this life. 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. We're going to look to the, the meat, the, the, the actual details of the three temptations next week. But consider with me the source of temptation. There's two ways the word temptation is used, and the difference is key. One is a test, a crossroads of choice to reveal one's true or superficial faith. Another is the lure to sin, an enticement or solicitation to do evil. It's absolutely essential that we understand the difference because God tests his people all the time to give way for false faith to be revealed or to show true faith to be shown. God never lures people to sin. That is the work of the devil. The sin at work in our fallen nature. Please understand the bait, the call to choose sin is never the work of the holy God. James said it most succinctly in James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Why is temptation never from God? Well, simply because God is good and holy, righteous. These are his attributes. Attributes of God refer to his character, his person, his nature. They refer to the perfection of God, the being of God, the qualities of God. A.W. Pink said it well. He, God, is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is super added quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is. And there can be no addition made to him, no subtraction from him. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolutely pure and without sin, stain, evil. Therefore, he doesn't sin or do evil. Therefore, he doesn't tempt or lure others to sin or do evil. Now, I want to be thorough here because there are many ways that God, in his sovereignty, uses sin and evil and sinful and evil people or demons to accomplish his holy purposes. The key is that God doesn't do evil or tempt anyone to do evil himself. Fallen angels, fallen man are all that is needed for the world to be filled with constant and luring temptation. For example, the most evil deed in all of history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was ordained by God. Not just the fact that it would occur, but all the individual actions connected with it. But God did not do it 
nor is he to be blamed for it. Acts 4, 27 and 28 testifies, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the actions of all the participants in the crucifixion of Jesus had been predestined by God. Yet the apostles clearly teach that no moral blame is given to God. For the actions resulted from the willing choices of sinful men. Peter makes this clear in his sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23. In one sentence, he speaks of God's sovereign plan, but it's clear to assign moral blame to the actions of lawless men. They were not forced by God to act against their wills. Rather, God brought about his plan through their sin, their willing choices for which they were held responsible. We must understand that though God did raise up evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done, it is very clear in Scripture that Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil, but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Church, Scripture never blames God for evil, and neither should we. Did God ordain that Jesus would go to the wilderness and be tempted by Satan? Yes. Did God tempt Jesus to sin? No. Satan did that. In a first cause way, God ordains that his beloved are tested. But any temptation to sin is never from the hand of God. It is always a second cause of the evil one or the fallen world around us, the enticement of our own fallen and fleshly desires. The biblical doctrine of divine concurrence is really important here. Divine concurrence specifically acknowledges that, number one, God is the first cause of all things. Number two, that two or more parties can act truly and genuinely in the same event. And, number three, these acts can produce an outcome without all parties having the same intent. The false doctrines that too many people hold to that counter God's teaching of divine concurrence and Holy Scripture are that of pantheism, which basically teaches creatures don't act, only God does. Or deism, which basically teaches that creatures act and God stands aside. Our friend, theologian, Professor James Dolezal, said it well to set the record straight about this most important point. The doctrine of concurrence upholds the creator-creature distinction. It upholds the two biblical pillars of truth we identify from Scripture. These truths are God is absolutely sovereign, and he never sins. His will is supreme. He has preordained all that comes to pass. He is the first cause of all things. That's pillar one. 
And each human has a real will, genuinely acts according as a second cause, and is morally responsible for all he or she does. That's the second pillar. Consider again Acts 2, 23 with me. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's the first cause. But God does not sin. He's not responsible for the sin. No moral blame for him. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the second cause. Lawless men did the sin. They're responsible for the sin. This is a really important hermeneutic and way that we have to understand Scripture according to Scripture. We don't bring our reasoning to this. We, we understand these things as, as God has revealed them to us. So back to our passage, God ordains that Jesus is tempted by Satan. First cause. But God does not sin. He's not responsible for sin. Satan is the one who tempts Jesus. This is the second cause. Satan is the one who's responsible for the temptation he willingly brings. Christian, when we're struggling with a great trial in this life, a great injustice, tragic loss or hardship. We don't blame God as if God has done something wrong. Saying in our sin, why have you done this to me? As if somehow we are worthy of something and he has somehow failed that. We understand that God ordains what we're doing, what we're going through, but we receive that fundamental truth by faith and trust that God's ways are higher than ours. Never blaming or disrespecting his perfect will and ways. It's also really important to remember and keep in mind Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Christian, if you truly belong to Christ, you are never without the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome life's temptations. You don't need something else to get through the Holy Spirit is enough is inside you is at work you don't need some more money you don't need some drugs you don't need more free time you don't need whatever the world is telling you that you need the Holy Spirit is enough He's the answer. He's the power. He's what we need. Praise God. He's what we have. Amen? God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Christian, do you know this? Do you believe it? 
to proclaim this in the face of your temptations, in the face of your tempters. Church, we must heed Jesus' important teaching of his disciples of how to pray. What did he say? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 13. Church, when facing temptation to sin, we must know that it is our sinful fleshly desires and the bait of Satan that we're at war with, not God. Our prayer to God is to lead us by his power out of temptation and deliver us from evil. May we truly be prayed up for the moment by moment and day by day battle we face in this life and these things. May the Spirit be at work in each of us to turn from sin's alluring call so that we honor God in our mind, in our words, and in our actions. More on this next week as we consider the details of Satan's temptation of Christ. But let's consider in our look at Jesus' preparation for the battle that's coming another layer. Verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness we see Christ's experience here echoes the wilderness experience of Israel. God led the people into the wilderness and the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Understand that the wilderness is referenced here to a very hard place. Okay? It's a place of testing that evokes imagery of something very vast, a waterless land with snakes and scorpions. Those aren't my descriptive words. Consider Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. The Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. And verse 15. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with fiery serpents and scorpions. A quick side note that we're going to see later in our study of this passage, is that all of Jesus' biblical quotes in response to Satan's temptations all come from Deuteronomy 8, connected to Israel's wilderness wandering. Interesting. When God's people were in the wilderness church after the Exodus and in preparation for going into the Promised Land, they failed miserably to test they faced and turned to satisfy their fleshly longings and give themselves to idols instead of remaining faithful to God alone. Another callback to the wilderness wanderings of God, of God's people, is also the relationship of the number 40 here. 40 days that he was in the wilderness and fasting. This is another callback to Moses. 40 days was the length that Moses fasted, Exodus 34:28. Mentioned Deuteronomy 9.9. And later, Elijah as well. 1 Kings 19.8. Forty days was also the time Moses spent on the mountain to receive the covenant of God. Exodus 34.28. So it's important to see that Jesus was not in a luxurious space, a, a picturesque thing, something you would put on your, your screen, on your computer, and enjoy looking upon it. No. There was great challenge, opposition, hardship to natural man. Again, Jesus is getting ready for a long fight that will begin with the greatest temptation ever given to man. The wilderness is real. 
And it is a part of him getting ready for all that's to come. Consider another layer of preparation that was his discipline, and that was to not eat. Commitment to go without. In this church, we, we bear witness to Christ's humanity, the authenticity of his humanity. Luke chapter 4, verse 2, he says, He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Um, I have a close friend who now has since passed away um, who fasted for 40 days without eating. He almost died. Some of you know him. I mean, his belt was like hanging below his knee, the end of his belt, how much weight he lost. Um, it, it was really an amazing sight to see. It was painful to watch. 40 days without food is very real. I mean, you're hungry. Think about that. Jesus is truly, church, physically hungry. His body has been without food for 40 days. This is also a callback to Israel's struggle. Yet the Israelites grumbled over missing the food that they enjoyed in their enslavement. Right? This is such an impact on them. They wished to return to captivity. Numbers 11, 4 through 6 the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I want you to do business with how hungry Jesus is after 40 days. Some of you just heard me read about all those good foods, and you're fighting hunger for lunch right now. <laughs> See with me, church, how miserable and complaining Israel was. They were free people. They were being fed. God provided what they needed. See, Jesus is very hungry. He wasn't eating manna. He was truly without food for 40 days. This means his flesh was so very weak and hungry. This brings us to an important observation. There are many notable comparisons between the temptation of Satan for the first Adam in the Garden of Eden and the second Adam, Jesus, here in the wilderness. One of the things that's very starkly different in both of these is the condition of their flesh. Consider it with me, church. The first Adam found himself in a paradise-like setting. Comfort, beauty, the company of a beautiful woman, the bounty of a great and abundant food source and drink in Eden. There was no reality of the fall on mankind that would plague creation. That was all still yet to come. There was no thorns and thistles or pain or sickness or death. None of that. 
By great contrast, the Judean wilderness was the most desolate and harsh stretch of land, lacking many, if not most, of the good things that gladden a man's heart. It was full of scorpions and snakes and ravines and tumbled boulders. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. He's on his own. He had no companion like Eve by his side. In this, see with me that the first Adam was tempted, church, on a full stomach. And the temptation he fell was to eat of a forbidden fruit on a full belly. Jesus was hungry at a level like few can relate in this room after 40 days of not eating, and yet he did not compromise. Church, we must not dismiss the weight of the temptation that is presented to Christ in the weakness of his flesh. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. That means just like you and me, his flesh was very weak. Sometimes we think, oh, this wasn't a big deal for Jesus. We picture him like Superman flesh. He's fully God. Yes, he is fully God. But he is also fully man in the incarnation. Fully man means he experienced the weight and the depth of his hunger and weakness of his flesh, just like you and me. Fully. Listen to the historic Baptist confession about the hypostatic union. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined in one person without converting one to the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Historic Baptist Confession, chapter 8, section 2. Church, it is so important that we rightly see the true vulnerability of Jesus in this hour of great temptation. This was not a casual test, Jesus, that Jesus is about to experience. He's about to experience, to my understanding, the greatest temptation ever given to man. I don't know of another man who is ever tempted with something of such grand nature and such depth as what Jesus is tempted with by Satan. And he's going to withstand it perfectly in righteousness, even though he is incredibly weak in his flesh. This is truly an amazing thing to witness. Consider as we begin to see all that Christ did and endured for our eternal salvation and for God's eternal glory. It is in relationship 
to this not eating that we see one of the most important takeaways from Christ's preparation that he's about to face. This is intentional time. He's not on a bench waiting to be called into the game. This is well-used time. So what was one of the main things he's doing here? And that is the spiritual discipline of fasting. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. In this, we see an important spiritual discipline modeled by Christ for us. Um, that was really important for his life and ministry. The spiritual disciplines are practices we find in Holy Scripture that God's given us to honor God in our doing that promote spiritual growth and endurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their practices or habits that Christians prioritize because it aids us to trust in God despite what we're going through and to grow in Christ-likeness. They are truly, church, good gifts of God for us. 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Understand, disciplines are good practices. They're intentional things we prioritize to do. It's how we steward these days he gives us. A simple definition of the spiritual discipline of fasting is this. Fasting is a voluntary going without food for a determined time for the sake of some spiritual purpose. There's not a lot of didactic commands to fast, but God has made it clear in his word that it is good and helpful for us to practice the spiritual discipline. Jesus doesn't say if, but when you fast, Matthew 6, 16. He doesn't say his followers might fast. He says they will fast in Matthew 9, 15. There are many examples in Holy Scripture where fasting is spoken of. One of the most famous ones that we see is right here in our passage. Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son in flesh, to purposely, the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to go be removed alone in the wilderness with God and to fast for 40 days. Other examples we see of this in Daniel 1-2, Daniel and three other Jewish young men patiently fasted for 10 days without uh, in that particular fast, eating only vegetables and drinking water. Uh, Moses, when he met with God at Mount Sinai, it says he fasted. Deuteronomy 9.9, 9, when I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of covenant of the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. <coughs> Esther 4.16, we read that Esther requested that the Jews fast and pray on her behalf. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold the fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast with you as well. In the New Testament, we read after the Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 9, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. See with me how fasting is often practiced in Scripture in these important moments and crossroads in people's lives, preparation for what's to come. And in this, it's good for us to slow down and really see and not miss the gift of Christ in this for us. The blessing of fasting to strip back the noise in one's life to focus on the Lord all the more. Let's take a few moments this morning 
in the preparation of this, in, in the working through the, this text of preparation to really do business with this church. I think this, this particular area of life and faith is often one we kind of fly by and it, it, it's kind of maybe one of those things for us that's constantly on the list of, yeah, I wish I would do that more and don't really know what that is or how. So let's take some time this morning and really in this very critical and one of the high highlights in all of scripture where this is given to us, we would do business with this. First, what is, my goal in this is what is fasting and what is it not? First, fasting is a mode of surrender during a time of request to the Lord. The Old Testament passages like Isaiah 58, Ezra 8, we see the people of God fasting as a way of focusing on bringing their request to the Lord in prayer. It was heightening the focus of that time. When the people of God were serious about a need they wanted to put before the Lord, they would often clear the deck by stripping back normal things of life like food for the sake of helping them be all more devoted to prayer and God's word. One could ask, why does abstaining from eating assist our time of seeking the Lord? It's because we're upsetting the normal routines and flow to bring about a needed attention, wake up to the matter at hand, to bring it to the Lord. A type of devotion and surrender that creates more attention and focus on God. It's so easy to get busy with our days, and since we are such creatures of habit, we can often just get caught up doing what needs to be done and neglecting time and attention to really go to the Lord with the matters at hand. When you fast from food and then you feel the hunger pains that come with that, you're reminded of your desperate dependence on God. You're reminded that there is a matter at hand that you desire to seek the Lord in. In this, you're reminded to pray, to take it to the Lord. In general, this really has become an all-too-rare practice on, the level, on any level compared to the times of old or other cultures. In older, simpler days, the idea of unplugging from life and life's routines and business to strip back and really focus on the Lord was not that uncommon. But you think about your own life or just about anyone you know in the modern setting and how often you hear people saying, I'm going to unplug and retreat to the mountains just before you know, to be with God alone, that's rare. It's rare that you hear people really doing that. Um, we're just so good at staying busy. The idea of being away from our phone or modern advancements just sounds crazy. What does it look like to strip back and seek the Lord more than we do? To get back to the fasting specifically, have you ever had a big decision to make, a big crossroads of life, and needed to be clear, to clear the deck, to really focus on the Lord, seek Him and His Word in that time, coming decision? This was what fasting is intended to help us do, a purposeful stripping back, clearing the deck, upsetting the norm, so that you can be reminded to give time and attention to that, of that topic to the Lord. To do nothing different, is to be in jeopardy of letting the need to stop and pray just pass you by, to continue to reason in your own right-mindedness or continue to heed the counsel of the world instead of the truth of God's word. It's often our enemy's greatest win in our life to simply keep us busy, moving and convinced that we couldn't afford time to slow, to fast and pray. The discipline of giving up the food of Something so central to daily living is our way of really setting ourselves up to do business with God in the matter at hand.
Number two, fasting is a way to prioritize, church, our hunger for God. The unique aspect of fasting from food that provides to be so spiritually helpful is the fact that physical hunger makes a way for us to better hunger for God. It exposes our need and our dependence on the Lord. We're desperate creatures that cannot survive without fuel for living. Our dependence on God being the most central of all of our needs, for he is the creator and sustainer of our lives, every moment of our being and living. Too many days we can be guilty of lacking the gratitude or dependence on God that we should have because um, of just everything that we have. Purposefully removing the substance of food heightens our hunger for God. Our hunger for God needs to be a fundamental thing that we never move beyond, which is why Jesus doesn't wait days, months, or years into his ministry to practice fasting. Instead, he starts his time in ministry by committing 40 days to look to the Lord in fasting and prayer. In this, fasting is a good way to say to oneself, God is better than whatever it is. As good and God-honoring as good food might be, God is better. Think about how this practice for Jesus prepared him to resist so well the temptations of Satan. To really, I mean, you, you could almost see it. It feels, it feels contradictory, right? In some ways, his flesh is so vulnerable because he's so hungry. And yet, in the other, the, the depth of the communion and prayer and what that dependence on God and reminder of God is better super equipped him, right, to then contest the deception and the lies the enemy would lay at his feet. I mean, cheat with me for a second into the next few verses of our passage where we're going next week. Let me read one through four. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christian, there are a lot of days when we are vulnerable to be satisfied with the basic provisions and happenings of this life. There's a lot of days where we think physical bread is more important than spiritual bread. Fasting is a way to disrupt that flow and routine in order to remind our mind and our soul that God is better. He is always better. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 63, 1 through 5, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
fat and rich food is really satisfying. God is way more satisfying. Do you hear the holistic desperation of David for God above all else? The reality, if we're honest, is many days we just don't feel that way about God. Fasting is a way to disrupt, to reconnect ourselves to this glorious truth and allow us to better hunger for God over any other thing. Number three, fasting is a great way to focus on the leadership of God. The reality of life is that we all too often are content being at the helm of our own lives, calling our shots and making our own way. But as Christians, we need to always be and fully dependent on God, seeking his will, not our own, for we belong to him. We've been bought with a high price. Fasting is a way to help us submit ourselves to the Lord as we seek his holy will. Acts 14, 19-23, we see the early church leadership committing themselves to fasting as a part of the very appointing and ordaining of the church elders. Look with me, Acts 14, 19-23, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that though many tribulations, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In this, we see that fasting is a good practice. When faced with big decisions in life, stripping back our dependence on food so that we can better put our attention on prayer and the study of God's word allows us to more intentionally focus ourselves and submit ourselves to him. By clearing the deck in this way, we seek God to sustain us and lead us. It is a practical way whereby we live out Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Fasting helps us to truly prepare ourselves for his holy will, even when we might not want that. We want what our flesh wants. The truth is, for those of us who belong to Christ, at the end of the day, our faith means we don't want it to go our way. I want it to go Christ's way. We want to go out it God's way. But if we're going to be in tune with God's way, we have to be still and know that he is God. If we remain busy, if we remain so full in the belly, then it's harder to really be dependent and desperate for him. Fasting allows us to intentionally disrupt these things, to make a way to put God again at the home and set ourselves back on track. Let us just be blessed by the simple blessing that it is of the Lord to us, church. Right? No, no overt prescription, no, no uh, command from your pastor, here's what you're going to do today or tomorrow. No, it's between you and the Lord, church. But let's see the, the blessing that it is. Let's see the testimony that we're given, especially by Christ himself.
See with me our Lord, who's led by the Spirit to prioritize time to get away, to be still, and to fast and pray. Such a great inspiration to us, hopefully one that allows us to value it more, the good discipline the Lord's given us. Praise God for Christ, for his obedience and discipline in this critical time of life and ministry to press on and go forth and accomplish what he came to do. That he would die the death we deserve, take on the wrath that we as sinners deserve. In doing so, for those the Lord ordains to give faith that we are given his righteousness. He takes on our sin, the wrath do it. The Holy God looks upon us and calls us his. There is only salvation in Jesus. I pray, if you don't yet know it, be God's grace upon you this day, that you would repent and believe in him and be saved. I'm thankful for this insight into this marvelous moment in Jesus' life. The preparation that he does. I've been meditating on a proverb that speaks to this, Proverbs 24, 27, sharing it with those around me. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. My prayer is that we would be inspired by our Lord's example to better prepare. To be sure that we're in step with the Holy Spirit and all these things. To be willing to prioritize good spiritual disciplines, such as fasting. The hope in all of this is to stay intimately abiding in Christ. Never moving ahead of him. Never going forth without him. But resting in him. Relying on him. Waiting on him. Trusting in him and walking by faith in him in all things. I'm excited to move into the next part of this amazing testimony with you next week, Lord willing, as we look to the tempter himself and the details of this engagement between Satan and Christ. Pray with me. Psalm 62, 1 through 2 and verse 5. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O oh my soul, waits in silence. For my hope is from him. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are not faithful. We thank you for your grace. For it, we are so undeserving. We thank you for your love, which this is like um, just air to breathe. It's wind beneath our wings for flight. It's just a marvelous thing to, to know your love for us. Shown us abundantly in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, your Son. We are so grateful. Father, help us to slow down. Help us to embrace the good of preparation. Help us to 
just heed the, the blessings of, of this narrative of Christ our Lord. And to savor and to well up with worship for him who endured all these things for us, for your, for your glory, for the gospel to go to work and the privilege it is to be part of it in this day. Hear from your saints as we rally our voices in worship, as we prepare for ministry and testimony, walking with you in these days. We pray confidently the perfect mediation of Christ. Amen.